Did you hear about the uh, new uh, corduroy pillows, Ben? Oh, I feel like it should know this. They're making headlines. <laughs> That's the one. <laughs> oh, dear. Did I tell you I've, uh, I've adopted a pet termite? I'm going to call him Clint. Clint Eatswood. Lovely. What episode is this? <laughs> this is five. episode five. And this week we're talking about mobile networks. Yes. It's just that. Well, I feel you could try harder. I mean, I can write it for you if you want, but, you know, I believe yeah. in you. Well, I'm, I'm writing it. I can do that. Yeah. You know, just nothing else. Just fix it in post, Mark. <laughs> just, yeah. <laughs> Hello and welcome to 361, a podcast about mobile technology and the world around it. My name's Ewan McLeod. I'm Ben Smith. And I'm Rafe Blanford. This is Season 21, Episode 5, and this week we're revisiting a favourite topic, mobile networks. Hello, gentlemen, welcome back. You and McLeod is in another hotel room, so just quickly check to us where you are. That's right, I'm in Riyadh. Hello. Hello, you and McLeod, and Ray Blanford is back in the same room you're always in, so coming to us live from central London. That is absolutely right. Hello, Ben. Hello, you, and hello, listeners. Hello, listeners. Yes. And as ever, we'll uh, chat later content first. It's my new strategy. And also, we have had an email. Actually, we've had more than one email, but we've had one email. I was going to say, an email? No, no, we've had several emails, but there's one okay, that... right, because, yeah, I keep telling people that this is one of the, you know, most well-listened-to podcasts. It depends if you're measuring quantity or quality of listenership, right? but for sure, we've had an email, but more importantly, it says you're wrong, so I think that's why we'll share that at the end of the, uh, the episode. Exactly. To me? Well, okay, right, well, then, then that's, uh, we'll, we'll have that one then. To be honest, whenever I get an email saying we're wrong, I always assume they're talking about your bits anyway. Yeah, we'll, we'll cover that at the Wait, end. Wait, so it specifically <laughs> says that you and Guy is wrong? No, it says, it says that we're wrong, but in the most gentle way. Oh, we're wrong. Okay, good one. Probably are. Exactly. Let's take that at the end then. Excellent. We'll look forward to that. So back in the bad old days when we launched the podcast, we used to spend a lot of time talking about mobile networks and stuff like that, mobile connectivity, and it rather stopped being a theme over the last couple of years because it sort of became an unchanging, uninteresting subject. Also ran. Yeah, we've been away for a long period of time. So this week, we're going to go back to our roots and talk about mobile networks. And I think the reason we wanted to do that was to sort of reflect on actually sort of what's changed, what's happened over the last couple of years. And also the fact that although smart devices now, they connect to Wi-Fi, there's all kinds of different sort of connectivity options all over the place. These things are still largely useless devices, we know, without good connectivity. So I wanted to kick off you, McLeod. You are not in the UK at the moment, but you have no. come back to the UK recently. Mm, and mm. so I think you are more qualified than anybody amongst us to give us a view of how connectivity in the UK compares with other places. So go. Then, okay, so I've been out of the UK for almost seven years. I was in Denmark then, middle of, maybe it's eight years actually, 2016. Is that right? No, seven years. Yeah. And living in Denmark where there is ubiquitous everything. It just the connectivity is yeah, excellent. And then all across the Nordics, incredibly good. I never thought about connectivity once. And even, I, I dare say, when I've been traveling around Europe for work purposes or even you know, skiing up the top of the mountain, I never thought about connectivity. It just worked. 
And then in the Middle East, specifically living in, in Muscat and Oman, again, I never thought about connectivity. The only time I was thinking was when you know, it was 4G, not 5G, you know, for a few seconds or something. I would go, well, why is that? Where's my 5G? So coming back to the UK, and I noticed it really after the whole COVID because I was away from the UK for quite a while. Coming back, I didn't realize just how bad it was. And I, I'm wondering if how much you guys don't recognize or just deal with it. Because I remember coming, getting into a taxi, driving back oh, yeah, on the motorway, M25. I'm just assuming I can use the hotspot, do some email, and I can when the taxi's stationary. So in fact, I wrote a blog post on Mobile Industry Review. Right. Oh, is that still a thing? It is still a thing. I wrote a blog post the other, you know, a few months ago saying the best thing about coming back to the UK and being stuck in traffic is you've actually got mobile signal, typically, on the M25, usually, usually. But yeah, the minute you get over 30 miles an hour and nothing, or it's just really poor. Then trains, oh my gosh, going up to London. So I live in the countryside in Hampshire, it's an hour into London, and you know, every, I, look, I don't mind in the middle of nowhere. Uh, it is frustrating, but it's quite quaint in the middle of nowhere if you don't have signal. But going up to London, going through these major, major conurbations, there's a word. Good word. You know, big urban centres, and there's nothing. You know, the, the train arrives in the station, and you've got to wait a minute or two for the phone signal to you know, even find, find itself. And then I noticed that the Wi-Fi on the train, which runs on cellular, it's rubbish as well. The, the benefit of actually using Wi-Fi is the various different caching or whatever it does. You know, the phone thinks it's still connected, so it, start, it doesn't throw up errors. It just, it's just incredibly slow. Whereas if you're using your, your cellular stuff, it's, you know, it will throw errors all the time. I'm astonished that you're putting up with this. Absolutely astonished. Well, I had an inkling you were going to say that because every conversation we've had since you've come back, even when I haven't asked how things were, you've complained about this, but you've shared it with the listeners now. <laughs> so perhaps I'm a bit numb to it, but Rafe, my thought when we were planning this episode out was actually how little things had changed since our last conversation. So Ewan's frustrated because he's used to having sort of ubiquitous 5G everywhere and all that kind well, of I stuff. I just assumed it would have got better. Right. And for example, the last episode that we did before our break, we did talk about 5G. And I think actually you were giving me a hard time a good long time ago now about sort of not being very excited about 5G because effectively I wasn't feeling the benefit of it. Yes, I remember. Yeah, And I, I knew that that was a position that was going to age poorly because I felt mm. you know, sooner or later things are going to move on and that's going to age poorly. And I was trying to make a point at the time when we were talking. But we're now more than 18 months later, probably two years later, and I still don't have access to 5G where I live. And I don't, I mean, this is a, maybe a UK specific thing, but I don't feel actually like very much has changed in terms of coverage, in terms of speed, in terms of network reliability. So before you and I do more anecdata, you know, do you have any insight <laughs> in terms of facts on this? I do. And you're in, you're in a wrong. <laughs> Oh, no. It's Go on. called confirmation bias. And uh, Ewan has changed his pattern of behaviours. When he is globetrotting, he tends to stay in major urban areas and goes to the regularly visited and stays on the main transport networks. If he was to go off-grid, he might discover that the connectivity was similar to choosing to live in the middle of nowhere in the UK, although middle of nowhere is all relative when we're talking about the southeast of the UK. Yeah. So it's one of those things that you notice it when you don't have it. And actually, if you look at some of the reporting, and in the last few days, Ofcom has actually released 
their kind of latest set of data in terms of what the connectivity is like and how good it is. And it's actually based on using survey data from OpenSignal. For those who aren't familiar, that's kind of an open source collection, collecting data on cellular connectivity. And it says that 88% of UK connectivity is through 4G. So it probably does confirm that particular thing. But what we're seeing is kind of the increase in coverage. You know, the data kind of backs that up. What's interesting is that the kind of fader rates, i.e. when you don't get connectivity, are worse on 3G. They've got a little bit worse, but on 4G and 5G, they've improved. But I think one of the interesting things is like people talk about connectivity from their phone, but 64% of the time, this is according to this report, they're still relying on Wi-Fi. Mm. So it's also, I think, something that people have started noticing again because they are starting to move about a bit more, and that's both personal travel but also work travel after a couple of years in lockdown. So I think you have to be careful when making claims like that. But I do think there is a capacity issue and maybe we'll come back to that because the data also shows that more and more data is being consumed over the mobile network so i think a lot of the anecdotes that you hear are probably going to be about that and if i speak personally since we last had this conversation there's been 5g coverage on local tower to the blunford estate and so suddenly it's amazing to have that and you can have it in the countryside in the countryside in a relatively remote area for the southeast and prior to that it was 2g essentially and if you were very lucky, you kind of got 3G from the next mast over. But the point about that, that has changed how the connectivity gets used. It's now a backup for the home broadband and things like that. So your personal experience and actually what the consumer surveys show is your experience is very driven by the operator you choose. And we can come back to which are the best performing ones. And they are so commoditized now that people choose their operator based on their experience of connectivity in the key areas where they spend time. So I think you're going to have to come at me with a bit more data than it doesn't work where I am. And it's different to Denmark or... Okay, wait, 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 wait. I do want to point out that, that, yeah, I like the phrase anecdata, but on my phone, I've got two phones I travel with. I've got three in the UK, right? And I can imagine you're going, oh, yeah, well, you know. So that's the mobile network three. No, mobile network three, sorry, right, uh, three UK. I have my Danish SIM, contract SIM, which is 3 Denmark, and that roams onto a whole lot of different... Obviously, it would prefer a 3, but it roams, you know, wherever. But then I've got my Anticillat UE phone. That roams onto anything, whichever it can, right? It's got some preferred ones, but it roams, right? And then I've got my Omantel, right, which roams. Okay, so the, the benefit is, and when I put on the data switch, so we basically use anything, use anything, please, any network at all, anything, please, anything, keep me connected. What's really striking is that is not happening, you know, especially when I'm on the train. Sometimes when I'm walking through London or other cities, I'll realize why you know, my, my wife, you know, she was texting me or sending me messages on WhatsApp. All of a sudden, she's not. And it's because I'm in Basingstoke. I'm sorry to hear that. Yeah. I'm in a city. Yeah. Can I ask you how many train rides you uh, took in Oman? They don't have trains, I don't think. But look, yeah, I, I hear your point on confirmation bias. However, I have actually been to the middle of nowhere. In fact, Oman has a massive area called the Empty Quarter. I haven't been there. Uh, mm-hmm. But you can guess what's there. Right? It's clearly not empty because it's got coverage. And what that means is that the density of the network... I, I don't know if it does. I don't know if it does. I've just looked up what confirmation bias means. It turns out it's exactly what I thought it does. 
That's good. That's good. <laughs> uh, look, look. Yeah, yes, you're right. I, I think it'll be frustrating for many network engineers to be hearing us talk, but I don't think that takes away or should take away from the poor, poor experience, right? You guys travel to Europe, right? And look, when I go skiing, it's in the middle of nowhere, right? It's still 5G, right? I can have better quality conversations there than in the UK. I think the the thing that stands out for me, and it, I think it's supported a bit by what Rafe was saying, although by definition, like everybody's experience is going to be, you know, where you live, where you go, what yeah, you care yeah. about. Yeah. But I think I am surprised that my own experience as someone who travels through London and through sort of major cities, but then also comes out into the Hampshire countryside, the same as you, Ewan, mm. is that it doesn't feel, and I accept that that's, you know, that's a very poor measure, but it doesn't feel like things have changed as much as I expected. Two years ago, we talked about the advent of 5G. Mm. We had a conversation about whether or not we'd even be able to use 5G as broadband at home instead of fibre or instead of other connections because it was mm. challenging to get broadband. And whilst there is 5G more widespread, I don't get it usably regularly like you. I find on transit routes and things like that, things haven't improved. And I wonder if we've sort of hit a bit of a limiting factor now where there are as many masts and there are as many towers as could practically be deployed. And the speed of improvement is now how quickly they can be upgraded to coverage, to faster speeds, those sorts of things. Is it that or is it NIMBY? In many of the markets I'm, I'm living or visiting, there isn't a NIMBY issue, or there may be a NIMBY issue, not in my backyard, right? But it's just done. Sorry, there you go. You're having it, you know. This is where I can say you're actually right, and I was wrong. Because let's, oh, wait, wait, wait. Let's just hear that again. Let's sorry, just say that again. That you were right, and I was wrong in what I just said. All right, take it in, Ewan, because there is a challenge in infrastructure, and it's noticeable about this time last year, the UK government actually introduced some new legislation and guidelines in an attempt to get rid of what it termed not spots, mm. you know, where there wasn't coverage. And it was actually not necessarily about pushing new stuff through the planning regulations, which in the UK are some of the toughest in the world. But it was also about actually what's known as permitted development and upgrading existing towers. And so some of the rules that changed were allowing you to strengthen an existing phone mast so you could upgrade it to 5G. And mm. so you could do mast sharing to put basically more things on the mast. Right. And so some of that, you know, it's easy to be kind of skeptical about government measures, but generally this stuff is, you know, pretty well thought about and I want to quote someone called Hamish McLeod, who is the chief executive of Mobile UK. What a very good name. Is it spelled correctly? Uh, it is spelled, spelled correctly. Capital L? Capital M, good, capital good. L, good. yep. So, all, all right. So, thank you, Hamish. And talks about the importance of building the connectivity that we all need. And this is a, clearly a kind of lobbying group and welcomes the reforms provided to the planning regulations proposed by the government. They've since come in. And as I said, it's about improving the existing ones. New masts are now allowed to be built five meter higher, so that can actually increase the uh, coverage, but also make them more suitable for 5G. But it also puts in a mm. whole bunch of things around buildings being able to host smaller masts and building-based masts be set up nearer kind of public roads and things like that. The reason that's important is actually the next stage is really about what's called network densification, which is kind of filling in and putting more masks in, in certain areas, and particularly high population areas, 
which is why in some areas or some urban areas there have been improvements. And this is the thing they kind of typically put into stadiums or around highly trafficked areas. So there is continuing to be like infrastructure put in. But as I said, it does relate back to demand and usage and everything else. And so, yeah, another stat, you know, the UK now has 94% 4G coverage. That's up from kind of 90% and 85%. So things are getting better. But the average consumer, according to this survey, also thinks things are getting worse. So they agree with you, yeah. and that's why you're right and I'm wrong. So that seems a good segue because, I mean, I think we could all share, you know, kind of I went on a train and I couldn't phone someone stories. And I've got a few of those myself, yes. but we'll, we'll move on from that. But I suppose, you know, kind of coupled with that idea that it doesn't feel like things are very good, and I, I concur with you in, on that one, and that it doesn't feel like things have improved as much as you would hope for. I wanted just to touch on a really difficult conversation that we were having in in the local WhatsApp group with the people that live on the road I live in. And that's people asking for recommendations. You know, what mobile network should I use? And realizing that actually there's now very clearly in lay people's minds a difference between can I get bars of signal on my phone and can I use that signal? So, you know, like the sense of quality, because there's quite a lot of times now where I do have connectivity, a connection full bars. Well, full bars, or I have a connection to a mobile network, but it's not usable, or it fails, you know, kind of repeatedly during the call. And it was quite hard as somebody who sort of who tries to communicate about technology issues to sort of have a conversation about network quality because we've got mm. no measures except our own experience that suffers all the biases that Rafe was talking about. That also feels problematic because I've had repeated issues where things have just stopped working or data connections have stopped and those sorts of things. And I've got no way to really diagnose those issues. In fact, I, I had one particular issue where network connectivity just stopped, even standing underneath a cell. You know, I knew I was in an wow. area with a cell. I, was, I had you know, full signal. I should have had no connectivity issues and data would suddenly stop. So something somewhere in the stack on my phone and the software in the mobile network, somewhere was failing. But it's a far too complicated issue to ring up the help desk, the customer service line and say, you know, please diagnose it. Because the moment I take 20 steps to the left or the right, I'm on a different tower or a different connection and it's impossible to say. And then the thing that sparked that conversation for our local group was that because of poor coverage by some networks, lots and lots of people in our area are EE customers. It's one of the largest, I think it is the largest operator in the UK. And they're EE customers because they know they get a signal. But the local mast failed and there were some coverage issues because the spillover coverage from other masts was pretty poor. And so lots of people were ringing their operator saying, I used to have good coverage at home and now I have poor coverage. And you could go on the map and you could find the mast and it says, we're servicing the mast. I'm sorry for any inconvenience. And Mm. people were getting refunds and things. But that then went on for three, six, I think we're up to nearly a year of maybe not being failed all the time, but but repeated failures. Really? And so- do you guys have any strategies to like get good quality of service? And you and I have to ask you first because you are captain, sort of find the pricing table, go to the right, go to the bottom and you know, sort of pay the most expensive one. And your sometimes weak but fairly reliable justification is quality of service. You know, I'm not I'm not yes. buying the most, I'm buying the best. I used to spend hundreds of pounds a month on Vodafone. Hundreds. Back when we were running the podcast the first time, first couple of years, I was Vodafone, Vodafone, Vodafone. Until I realised I'd, I'd got a, a three sim for some reason I can't I can't remember I think I was testing the network out or something, and I realised 
it was just the same, you know, like, why am I paying? Because I used to pay. The thing I, I didn't like, especially when I was running my own companies, I always wanted to make sure that when the venture capitalist phoned or the board members phoned, they could get me. I'm sure you used to say to me that you were on some kind of business plan that had a kind of a better quality of service, wasn't it? There was something that you could pay for that guaranteed when the mast was full, you got the first bite of the cherry. I, am I doing the mental equivalent of hallucinating that? No, I think you're hallucinating that. That, that was my idea. Okay. That's what I was suggesting. Actually, I was calling that. That was my idea for Vodafone Gold or something. Yes. You know, way back when. You can still find that on Mobile Ins Review. I thought they offered something like that. I don't know. Maybe. I was 150 quid a month. On, you know, on average, it was at least 150 every month. I was buying at the top possible, top possible, blah, blah, blah. I just switched. I just switched to three. So can I just posit, though, that you weren't actually really buying on a measure of quality? You were just buying on brand trust there. Brand trust. And actually, you know, the hereditary reality that Vodafone and O2 were first and had the choice of locations and so on and so on and so on. So in a poor market, they were best at that point in time of that rollout. Well, you're right. But in a, yeah, and in many cases, they had a better, the 3G or the cellular signal, or what do you call it, the, the frequency that they had, the frequency they had rights to was better quality or you got better service for voice. This is all voice. But say something, Rafe. It's funny how that institutional memory sticks and it's, you know, what you're familiar with. I mean, the reality is that recent surveys do show that 3 and EE have better coverage than O2 and Vodafone, but these things kind of stick in the memory. I think Mm. the other thing that's important to remember is actually there's a lot of mass sharing that goes on. And in the UK, we kind of have four big operators and two of them are in the mobile broadband network limited, which is EE and 3 doing mass sharing and then O2 and Vodafone have a joint team called Cornerstone. And so actually sometimes it's not about the brand. And you know, to answer the question, there are MVNOs that allow you to use multiple networks. So Things Mobile is one, Anywhere SIM is another. But this adds another complication that it's actually quality of service that matters. And while it's not very much talked about, the reality is that the operators do tend to favor those who are paying the kind of subscription tariff over pairs you go there is kind of quality of service management and prioritization of data and things like that is that true no one will talk about it publicly i thought that was an urban legend well this is the thing is it uh, an urban legend but what is true is that in terms of data you know if you go over your usage limit you will be managed down to a lower connectivity speed but if i'm a pay-as-you-go customer and you're a high paying monthly customer we're both stood next to each other on the same network it's maybe not provable but likely that you will get a better experience than i will because you're on sort of some higher tier of service and that you know ee for example would would rather drop me. Yeah, that's what I used to do. I used to count on that happening. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I would question that when you are on one of the brand operators, because I do think they treat them the same. And, you know, they're very clear than they say that, you know, you get the same service universally because there are, you know, obviously there are consumer rights things attached to this. But there have been instances where you look at the MVNOs, there is traffic shaping and prioritization that happens for those. So in the UK, these MVNOs, you know, all run on top of one of the four networks that I mentioned and you know they're obviously paying a lump sum and the way that works and both the fact that it's sort of going into their kind of networks operation center and it's very hard to talk about this in a general way because not an expert and actually the setups are quite radically different because there are 
some MVNOs that have kind of more connections and some that are basically a white label service. But there is definitely anecdotal evidence to suggest that they are prioritized differently. And I think it's probably an open secret that there are things enshrined in law and you know, net neutrality gets talked about a lot. But in mobile networks, ultimately, they can treat traffic in different ways. And I've described one, which is kind of the drop down level of service if you're over your usage allowances. But I think it's also pretty clear that with the modern networks, and particularly when you start talking about 5G, it's absolutely possible to have multiple networks or virtual networks and have their traffic prioritized in different ways. In fact, some of it's designed that way in order for kind of in emergencies, the public sector or emergency services to get given priority on things like that. And honestly, it surprises me that there hasn't been more of a move towards some kind of priority service or something that kind of guarantees better. I think it's probably because there's with so much anxiety about what the uh, backlash from consumers would be, because I suspect the kind of benefits in being able to charge an extra 10, 20, 30% to a relatively small number of someone's probably done the sums in the background and actually going, yeah, that's not a good thing to do. But that kind of quality of service is definitely a thing in the same way that capacity is definitely a thing. Like if you're on a busy train with everyone trying to use the network, or if you live in Ben's local area and everyone switched to EE, actually running against the tide might be a good idea because you'll be one person on the cell versus 100 people on mm. the cell. And particularly in rural areas, there are documented instances where everyone kind of following the herd, mm. everyone in the village uses the same thing, can be disadvantageous. And you know we've all been probably in crowded situations, stadiums, music venues, where things go bad when everyone's trying to use it. It's the equivalent to everyone turning the kettle on during the ad break in the World Cup, those things do happen because I don't think people realize just how much variance goes on in mobile network usage because mobile means you can have different numbers of people in your cell. I had always assumed that whilst there was a capacity crunch, so you know, a, a tower and a transmitter and a wire that came out of that tower might be constrained, that everybody who was connected to that tower got a, you know, a fair shout of that capacity. So it's curious, you're not the first person to say to me in recent months that they believed that the main networks gave their customers priority over other customers' networks. And I was surprised at the suggestion that you might even give preference between monthly payers and pay-as-you-go payers, but I think you you backed off that a bit, Rafe, as as an idea. It's really interesting because it's so hard to gauge the quality of the connection, the reliability of the connection as well. And actually, in all of those Ofcom studies and things, I think it's really hard to express the quality because you, know, you and you were saying, oh, I'm used to WhatsApping and things. But I think increasingly now people are getting in the habit of jumping between voice and text and rich media and things. And so actually, your experience of using WhatsApp is, oh, I'm using WhatsApp. But one minute you might be making a call and the next minute you might be sending me a message. And inside, I mean, you appreciate you're doing different things but you don't really think about what the burden on the network would be. And whereas actually those are hugely different burdens. And so, you know, kind of you might say, well, it's great because I made my phone call and then I I made my voice call and then I sent my message and it all worked perfectly. But actually I did it the other way around and I got a bad experience because we were over capacity. Mm. I suppose I find that a bit unsatisfactory, really. I really wanted to sort of get a sense of how you can know what's good, but I feel actually when it's more of a differentiator now than it ever was, because everything else seems to be moving slowly, if I can put it politely, mm. you know, that quality might be or reliability might be the, the selling point. It's still hard to gauge. 
I just want to move on. I think something that really has changed, at least in my perspective, is price. Mm. I am paying nothing now for mobile connections. So I'm using an MVNO. I'm using an MVNO that's wholly owned by a mobile operator. Okay. And I will touch in a minute on why mobile operators might compete with themselves for vir- with virtual networks. But I think I now pay half a month of what I paid when we last discussed mobile networks. So I'm paying barely, I think, 11, 12 pounds a month wow. for more data than I can ever use. I think I get about 100 gigabytes a month, given I'm, I've got good Wi-Fi coverage in some of the places I work. My data is mostly used for travel and out and about. I'm paying about 11, 12 pounds a month for that. It's more than I can ever consume. And yet, if I look back at previous mobile bills, I would have been paying like you, you and 20, 30, mm. 40, 50 pounds a month just for connectivity in the past, yes. sometimes yes. for unlimited tariffs. So I was massively yes. overbuying, but I could go oh, a yeah. small allowance, small allowance, small allowance, unlimited. Yep. You know, and I wanted to exist between the allowances and the unlimited. And then the other thing was as well, sometimes buying from you know premium brands with the idea that you might get a better service from them. Yeah. So what about you, chaps? Are you paying the same, more, less, different amounts? After doing hundreds of pounds to Vodafone, I realised you know, I've swapped to I'll try three. Did a twelve-month unlimited data contract with a you know, thousand minutes or something like that. Twelve quid. Yeah, I think it's twelve, ten, twelve, something like that. Yeah, per month. So your monthly spend is down to barely double figures. That's right. Although I usually get nailed because I'm abroad, yeah. Every time I need an SMS message, yeah, that does annoy me. You know, it's one pound. Then, then if someone does phone me and I do answer, it's two pound a minute. Yeah. So, so actually, my monthly spend is usually about thirty something. It's not too bad, right? So it's committed to ten, but yeah, thirty something because of all the uh, roaming. I'm I'm not doing deliberately, but involuntary roaming. Let's put a pin in that for a moment because I want to come back mm. and talk about roaming in a second. But Rafe, well, what about you, first of all? I'm similar. I'm on O2 because that's the Aye. thing that used to work in rural Sussex right. for me. But long, long ago, went to SIM only, went to unlimited data, kind of threatened to leave everything else. So I don't pay anything apart from when it's roaming. And I can't remember the figure, but it's sort of around £20. And that includes some extras like having um, sort of connectivity for my Apple Watch and a few other bits and pieces. I could probably optimize that down and just haven't chosen to do so because at that spend level, it's not enough for me to get too worked up about. And then probably like a lot of people that have, you know, some extra devices around, so have some extra SIMs and they're on various MVNOs and, you know, you can buy enough to have data for sort of six months and that's pretty convenient for iPads and things like that. And so honestly, go and look and choose which one is most appropriate at the time. And, you know, we'll probably touch on eSIMs later as well, because that's definitely a thing. I used to, I think even on the podcast, I used to recommend pay-as-you-go SIMs from three who were at the time were competing hardest, I think. They've always had some pretty competitive tariffs because they were the underdog. And I used to buy prepaid SIMs with allowances of data on that would last a year, and I could put them in iPads and my face and things like that. But actually now, because the costs have come down so much, also, you know, our needs have changed. So my son has an iPad with a SIM card in it. My wife has an iPad with a SIM card in it. I've got one as well. The car has a SIM card in it as well to provide a hotspot in the car. And I would have previously been very resistant to having lots and lots of contracts because you were just paying, you know, you're paying for the ability to connect when you want more than an amount of data. But because all of these devices are very well served with five or 10 gigabytes of data a month, and in fact, that's catering for peak usage. 
And I can, I can get that for four or five or six pounds a month for some of these MVNOs. I have now probably the whole house, you know, five or six Sims running for 40 pounds a month, you know, including essentially more data than we could possibly use. Wow. And it's surprising to me now that we've got all these connected devices and I have gone for a little while. I, I sort of toyed with the idea of not getting iPads with wireless connectivity in them and just going with Wi-Fi connections because you know, it's expensive to buy devices with cellular modems in. But actually, it's worth it now because they're always live. It always connects. You know, In fact, actually, it's money my lap- laptop that doesn't automatically connect when I'm outside of the home now. So it does rather stand out. But I mean, it really feels to me since we last spoke that costs have come down. And although I gripe about 5G because I don't get it and it's not reliable in the places where I go, I really do want it to arrive because I have a real connectivity crunch where I live and I don't have other options for broadband and I don't have options for high-speed connectivity. So I'd love to get Mm. 5G so that I could use it. But actually, it seems to me that most of these operators are offering the 5G on those same very low tariffs. It's no longer a premium thing anymore yes that's interesting so i could access all of that data yeah i kind of i mean i'm not going to give them more money than they need to but i'm holding these two contradictory ideas in my head which is mobile networks aren't really improving at the pace i wish and i'm not paying them enough you know that kind of i I sort of think that where competition on price might have sort of slightly undermined the budgets to go and build new towers and cellular coverage everywhere and that it's become you know as a customer i used to be a 40 50 pound a month monthly payment and now i'm down to you know so 10 12 personally and less than my individual spend as an entire household which never would have been the case mm. pause on that again for a moment yes uh, yet another <laughs> so i was really hoping to uh, discover some truth there except that oh yes it's worse than cheaper brilliant well we, we, we have to be careful here it's really good that it's, it's got cheaper as far as we were concerned it's just the, the quality hasn't improved yeah. necessarily our anecdotal quality i mean i would take you know contention with that in one sense because i think when we first started 361 we were talking about operators getting out of the way and being dumb pipes and i think that's kind of pretty much happened as the vision that we saw Mm. that kind of connectivity if not ubiquitous is pretty commonplace at high speeds and i think it's worth saying that 5g you know the average is well over 50 megabits per second you know, even 4G is up at 15 and 3G is down to 5. Like when we started this, like those kind of speeds were unheard of. Also upload. So it is entirely possible to, you know, and I have 5G as a backup router of my house and can actually run like multiple streams, do all my work off it, not worry about uploading, downloading big files. So I think it's one of those things where invisibly it's crept along. When you couple that with pricing as well and sims everywhere, and my anecdote on that is it's in the Kindle I don't have yes. to think about yes. connecting that. And, you know, there's various other embedded SIMs becoming increasingly common. That also applies to, you know, some smart home stuff as well, as well as IoT. So I think it's really easy to be negative about networks, but it has become pretty ubiquitous. But the trouble is people focus so much on the individual use case of when it doesn't work, whereas kind of the idea of ubiquitous connectivity, I mean, yeah, for voice, and maybe for SMS. But when we first started, like the idea that you'd use data anywhere, you know, there was whole services based around downloading and doing things offline, Yes, particularly with large amounts of data. So I think we've almost become a little bit blasé about the fact that Google Maps works anywhere. I can remember having conversations about here Maps, mm. Nokia Maps was so much better because it worked offline and Google That's Maps right. didn't. 
Yeah. And those drove a lot of the conversations. You don't really get that very much anymore. And I, I accept there are anecdotes in the times when it doesn't work, but actually it's almost more notable because the expectation is it's cheap, it's everywhere, and it's fast. And for the most part, you know what? It is. You're definitely right about all of that. You think we're at the point now, though, where I would like the option to pay for greater reliability. My needs have changed. My expectations have moved. And I think all of that's you know the truth. But now I feel like I'm only able to buy varieties of what, to me, in the UK at the moment, feel like budget or cost-based offerings because it's yes. brand and cost seem to be the only things that networks can observably compete on. Even the Ofcom data that you were talking about earlier, Rafe, it's not widely reported on. It gets quoted in a few adverts, but every network sticks a thing on the side of a bus that says, you know, we're the best at this or the best at that or, yeah. you know, with a 99%. Well, a little asterisk and you can sort of, you can make a claim that we had good coverage or fast coverage or whatever somewhere, but it does feel unreliable. I think one of the things I was also sad about moving on was starting to see for the UK free roaming beginning to be eroded away. I, I mean, just hearing you talking about being charged a lot of money to use your phone overseas, you and mm. you know, I'd got very used to all of the places I went just using my phone like I was at home. Yes. Especially, I mean, we mostly traveled in Europe. We sometimes traveled to North America. The mobile networks here offered those locations as inclusive on most of the tariffs that I was on. And, you know, life carried on. And it was increasingly rare to get surprise bills or to mm. not want to take a phone call or to not want to get a one-time password text, you know, because it was going to yeah. cost you pounds. Because the days of ludicrous prices had been, you know, done away with, not by the operators, but by regulators stepping in and insisting that, you know, kind of things were more competitive. Yes. And I see several of the operators have taken away free roaming in Europe following Brexit, although my bargain basement MVNO. I'm on Smarty, by the way, which is owned by three. Okay. That still does offer EU roaming up to a fair use tariff of, I think, more than 10 gigabytes, which is enough for all the trips we do. And during the week, I received some promotional stuff about being able to pay a few pounds extra and have my whole allowance available overseas. But that's not globally. That was just in Europe, I think. But it is still available if, you, if that matters to you, you want to shop. You and obviously you're not getting inclusive data and calling in Amman and Saudi Arabia and all the places that you're hanging around at the moment. No. Nope. What's the strategy? Are you just fully local numbers and local SIMs in every place? You need to think about it. So in Oman, I still have my SIM from when I was living there. I have a Vodafone eSIM and Oman Tel eSIM. So that's for Oman. Then for UAE, I know because I'm legal in UAE, I've got and to select the main local operator there. I've got there contract sim that's a physical sim no 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 that's an e-sim sorry for the purposes of any law enforcement organizations listening you've always been legal in the uae it's just that you now have a permit to be there for more extended periods of time that's correct sorry yeah thank you for clarifying i have never been illegal you made it sound as if you'd gone in under a trench or under a wire or <laughs> no, no, no. dropped in under the cover of darkness in fact uh, uae in particular is a very welcoming tourist visa regime <laughs> and, and they'll beat you up if you say otherwise <laughs> I couldn't comment. <laughs> but then what I'm doing when I'm going around the Middle East, the first thing I'm doing is always trying to remember to switch on. So I made this mistake. I was swapping between eSIMs and I was tired on a plane and I arrived at the airport, switched the phone on, and then it's, it's all, I'm getting connected, saying hi to the wife, you know, I've arrived, et cetera, et cetera. And then I think about five minutes later, I get a message saying, you have spent five pounds from three. Ooh. And then I get another one saying, you have spent 18 pounds. 
And I thought, what? What? Which even for you is quite an achievement in that few span of minutes. How would you manage that? Well, the, the, the first of all, the, the issue was it was delayed, right? And then I, it's just, I've been silly, right? And you just have to really, really be, be very, very careful because when I disabled one SIM, enabled another one, disabled this one, disabled, then the default was the UK one. Right. And that's the problem. So now my tip is Airalo. It's a mobile app I found. I was just getting so annoyed traveling around the uh, Middle East and not wanting to do the various different obscene roaming costs. And then also thinking, yeah, I do think it's a little bit unsafe nowadays if you don't have connectivity yeah. wherever you're arriving, especially as I'm usually wanting to get an Uber or equivalent from the airport. You need to have connectivity right away. And then also, you know, most airports will have you know, the concessions where you can go and get SIM cards, certainly here in the Middle East and every other country. You usually have to give your passport for voice because they want to know who you are. For data, no. Most countries, no. But that, what that means is it's actually incredibly annoying. You have to go and queue up. And usually, I've come off a plane with 800 people on it. And you know, five planes have arrived with 800 people. It's, it's really, really, really busy. So, Airalo, it's an eSIM app. You download the app. Use Apple Pay to choose a SIM you'd like. So, for example, before I arrived here in Saudi Arabia, I was in UAE at the airport there. I'd arrived in from Cairo. So Dubai Airport, I went on to Air Allo. I went to Saudi. I said $5 for one gig. Or maybe it might be $9, but generally it's $5 for a gig. Now you might think, oh, that's a lot of money. That's a lot of money. In terms of convenience and quickness and speed and comfort and getting connected, and then, then you're at the hotel. You know, that's the other thing. You, you can get Wi-Fi at the hotel. I just think it's fantastic. So tap, tap, done. It's Apple Pay, super quick. So you've bought the SIM. You can then charge it up if you wish. It's real time, so it's always telling you you've got this much data left, so that's really good. So I've never got an eSIM through an app. I've only ever got an eSIM from a UK operator who gave me like a QR code, to, a piece of paper with a QR code on to scan. Yeah. So just talk me through the journey of like, what's it like in the app? You download the app from the app store before you leave. Yeah, so it's three steps, three or four steps. So you've got the app and you, get, you have registered your email address and whatever, right? Now you're in. So you can choose various different types. There are some plans that all of Europe or, you know, all of the Middle East or whatever, but I usually just go per country. So if you're doing it, Ben, you've registered very quickly, name and email, then you select Saudi. Yeah. You select how much you want to pay, as in, you know, how much data do you want, and then agree terms and conditions, Apple Pay, confirm. Right now, SIM is ready. And then you press a button saying, right, install the SIM. Apple and Google, this all works seamlessly. It just says, right, are you sure? Yes. Okay. If you've got two active SIMs already, which I always do, yeah. which one do you want to deactivate? This is how I got caught. Yeah. And so you can stack them. So you can have like, yeah, yeah. if you've got an eSIM, let's say from a UK operator, you could just sort of deactivate that for a little while and it still stays on there to switch back to? Yeah. So I'll show you my, these are all my eSIMs there, right? Well, okay. So for the, for the purposes of people who aren't the three of us on this call, Ewan's got six, seven eSIMs. Too active and the rest. Yeah, I've, I've, I've sorted, right? So you can, you can see, look, there's Egypt, right? Because I was in Cairo this week. Yeah. Right, I've, that's deactivated, of course. Then there's um, uh, Etisalat. You're living the eSIM dream. There's my uh, Vodafone man. So, right, so it's really, really effective, really quick. Now, the one thing that got me is in Dubai, what I do, so in a, outside the country, I say activate. Then, of course, it can't activate that SIM, typically, because you have to be in the country for it to actually find the network and so on. But I install the SIM, it's ready. Okay, then I'll deactivate, carry on using my local in Dubai. And then I get on the plane, switch off. Then th this is where I have to be ma making sure I'm, I'm remembering. Then I switch on. Once I've arrived in Saudi, open, you know, and then say, right, please, data, data, please use 
the air alloy, and I've, I've called it Saudi or whatever. Yeah. Um, and this is seamless. Absolutely seamless. So many of our American listeners will be using eSIMs now because that's the default way of having an iPhone in North America. Now, you can't get a physical SIM in, in the iPhone 14 in North America. Really cool. But yeah. the experience of getting eSIMs from your normal everyday network operator, it's like you do it once when you get the contract and that's it. Mm. And I feel like you're chopping and changing and buying on a daily basis. And you know, kind of certainly my experience is that that was never through the app. It was through the settings menu of your iPhone or your device you know, with a QR code. And that's how I would activate. So on Mantel, you have to activate the eSIM, but you have to go and get it from the store. Whereas Vodafone on Man, I think you, you can install from the app, from the Vodafone app, and so on. You know, so it's, it's really quite interesting. It sounds really cool. I mean, I, I'm kind of not going anywhere that I'm going to be able to try this out because I say all, all our destinations are still, you know, covered in roaming. But Rafe, you've been on the road reasonably recently do you use a eSIM provider yeah i've used an eSIM provider and partly this is because post brexit as you mentioned some of the european roaming is starting to be rolled back and that's also applied to some international travel and so for me it's also the updating of the ios and android respectively makes it possible to keep using your voice number but then use data from another provider and depending on your settings you can kind of go I want to use the data from this, but I still want to make calls on this. And as uh, you described, very easy to switch in and out. I think the thing is that this is still relatively speaking a niche activity. I mean, the way this works is remote SIM provisioning. And you've mentioned QR codes and apps can definitely make it easier. And essentially what you're doing, I mean, it used to be the old days you had to specify what the GPRS settings were and the access point. And that's still going on in the background. But it's all been made much neater in that, you know, you can just basically press a button, bish bosh, you're on, and then also in the settings. But it's still a little bit esoteric, if I'm honest. But what I've noticed recently is that more and more eSIM providers are being kind of what I'd describe as unbundled, or it's making it easy for you to have them for specific usage. And you're just doing a quick Google, you can come across something like SIM Options, which is offering SIMs from six or seven different providers. There's another one, mobimatter.com, and they've got it from multiple providers. And you know you see the familiar brand names as well. So three, you can buy a global 13 gigabyte of data, works in 17 destinations, and it's $40. Now, for going on holiday, that will probably be perfectly sufficient and give you what you need if you're not doing streaming, or even a bit of streaming, frankly, will be fine. Mm. There are some of the names Ubigi, which is U-B-I-G-I. I've used them as well, yeah. You know, they cover 5G in 33 destinations. It's instant setup. It's, you know, digital SIM cards. So I actually think more of this will come in because people in countries where roaming is more of a thing will look at it. But also, I suspect this is the way you may get your quality of service desires fed you because Obviously, it's a lower cost doing things like this. And so I do expect, especially as things like the iPhone come with no SIM card in it, there's going to be an increasing fight over getting people to swap. Government regulation is probably also going to be you can keep your number and things like that. And to be honest, it's only in the relatively recent period that kind of eSIM has become, if not universal, then fairly standard. And as always with the smartphone, it started on the most expensive device you're getting it on more and more devices now. And a lot of that's actually driven by the fact it is cheaper for the hardware makers and for the providers because 
you know, in the background, you can have kind of integrated sims and embedded sims, and there are slight differences in the hardware, but they all use this kind of standard remote sim provisioning. And also, obviously, that is being used in non-mobile devices. So it gets used in laptops, it gets used in smart home stuff. And that ability to switch between networks is basically removing one of the barriers to entry. So it's, you know, in economic theory, I think it's externalities are being removed to make it easier. And that is going to drive down cost once again. Mm. But the ones that are most successful are when it's wrapped up nicely in an app and you just make it really simple for people. But as Ewan said, it's very possible for it to kind of go wrong. So I think there's still some work to do around the user experience of these things and switching things on and off because it shouldn't be impossible for a phone to go, oh, I'm in another country, switch to that one. Oh, I'm back in the UK, switch to that one. Because I suspect you could, you know, people using them now are kind of edge cases, but I reckon you could serve a lot of them. And what interests me is it shouldn't be that difficult to get to an eSIM that could use multiple networks and get you the best connectivity when you like. So much like kind of some of the more sophisticated MVNOs, and you know, we've talked about them in the past, got there. I do think there's probably, you know, a package that could be put together which would appeal to the Ben Rafe and Ewans of this world yes. to kind of give you that different level of service quality. But it, the thing is with that, it needs to be pretty smart about when it makes that switch. Yes. Because obviously it can be quite interruptive and things like that. And so I suspect that will be one of the advancement that comes in and it will be driven by AI. It will look at your behavior and go, yeah. right, you're at home, don't need to worry about it. Oh, you're about to get on the train. I'm going to switch it a couple of times. And that's just a prediction. So I think there's actually more to come on this network stuff. You know, it used to be about SIM apps and then there were all sorts of other things. And, you know, friends of 361 were doing some very clever things with SIMs. I wonder if the future of that is kind of cleverer things with eSIMs to kind of quality of service and universal coverage anyways we should wrap up there i promised at the beginning of the episode feedback yes come on so it's not me that was wrong that's very important they're saying we were wrong so listener steve has written in thank you steve steve's been listening for ages first of all hi steve he has a bone to pick and he i unfortunately much as i don't enjoy being told off he's actually correct during the first episode of the season we repeatedly said an android have you got an android an android and he says android is an operating system it's like ios or windows you wouldn't say have you got a windows have you got a linux android is an operating system for a device and he's correct all i can say steve is that i will try hard to get you and to do better at this what Wait, wait, I don't know. I, I typically would say Android phone, I'm sure. I don't think I would just say an Android. We did, repeatedly. Q mark, editor, you know. Yeah, exactly. Q dropping, you know, <laughs> <Yes>. playing. <laughs> so, no, we, we will try harder because I think people do say an Android. I've got an Android. And I think that now that is the primary brand, even perhaps bigger than a Samsung phone. You know, if you, Yeah, if, I just say I have an Android yeah. and an iOS uh, or an Apple. I don't say iOS because a lot of people don't understand that. But, y- yeah. Normal mobile people understand Android, though, right? We need to do better as tech nerds, for sure. But I think that is a thing that people say. But it is also interesting to note that I think we previously, in earlier seasons of this podcast, might have said, or it might have felt more natural to say, oh, I've got a Samsung, or I've got a Pixel, or I've got an LG, or a Sony phone, rather than calling out Android first. So there you go. Thank you for your email, Steve. If you have any feedback like Steve did, please drop us a note. Uh, I've got feedback. Please drop us a note. Go to the website 361podcast.com or find us 361podcast at mastodon.social is a good way to find us. We're on Twitter, but don't encourage him. Ewan. You're on X. 
You have to call it X. It's been rebranded. I'm not engaging with any of that nonsense anymore. I'm sorry. My brain is too full of important things. Okay, so I've, I've got user feedback, customer feedback from Muscat, from Oman. I worked with the individual for three years, mentioned a podcast a few times, as one does. And it's only once I left the country did the individual listen and has been working his way through these podcasts. He asked not to be identified, so thank you. Much of our listenership does in total secrecy for fear of uh, ridicule (laughs) and uh, repercussions. (laughs) But he had two points, two points. One, absolutely distraught was he that he doesn't qualify for a postcard from Rafe Blanford, right? Because he thought that was an amazing, amazing offer. He said, how do I get a postcard? I said, well, I'll speak with Ben and Rafe. Then the other point that he had was the episode that he loved the most was Rub Rafe. Yes. I did say you are a little bit late, like, you know, I don't know, eight years late to that, or you know, 16 seasons late or something. And his feedback was, why have there been no more Rub Rafe episodes? I think we've only just finished paying for Rafe Blanford's therapy bill for that, that first one. But yes, we should definitely... No. We should definitely try harder. No. And overcome the no. No. Just saying. Yeah. No. So anyways, thank you for everyone's feedback. Thank you for everyone who got in touch on Mastodon, particularly loads of lovely... Yes, that was nice. ...bits of feedback on Mastodon. I also abused my membership of various other forums to... Or Fora, Ray, come on, help me out here with the... Uh, Fora. Fora, to mention the, the episode. So lots of mobile geeks and uh, listeners for the phone show chat, which is a friend of the show, Steve Litchfield's effort with a, a, a group of fantastic guys. They humoured me uh, posting about it on their forum. So thank you very much. And thank you for the lovely feedback. Thank you. And hopefully, or you've already heard, because obviously there's a bit of a time lag, but uh, I gently took the feedback from one or two people who said, oh gosh, it's not going to be a whole season about Apple. No, it won't be. Hopefully you've already seen that, but it won't be. No. We're over time. We should wrap up the main business of the uh, podcast and we can get to the housekeeping in a moment. But uh, thank you very much, gentlemen. I thought we were doing housekeeping. No, well, you have with us after. That's afterwards. All right, sorry. You've been premature. I've housekept. You've already housekept. Sorry. Well, perhaps it'll be a short one this week. Yeah. Anyway, thank you very much. Please do get in touch. It's lovely to know people are listening, especially after such a long break. Thanks for all the uh, the kind words. We've still got electric cars to talk about and music and music subscription services coming up, amongst a few other things, before the end of the season. If there's anything you'd like us to talk about, or any thoughts that you have that you'd uh, like burningly to share with the 361 audience, please do. Quite a lot of our episodes originate from suggestions that we get from listeners. So please do get in touch, even just to let us know that you're still alive. Yes. Anyway, thank you very much. We will be back in a week or so. Thank you, gents. Thank you, Ben. Thank you, Ewan. Thank you. There you go. I see. Courteous Rafe. Bye-bye. And the 361 podcast continues after. That's the only podcast I listen to where they do that kind of uh, explainer as the, somebody comes in, you can hear the clinking of the um, cups and things. Yes, but they don't do that immediately. They start ruffling papers, don't they? This is in our time podcast we're talking about. Yes. Yeah. Talking of cups, let me, just, uh, let me just share my latest. I'm holding up a mug that I received in yeah. the post today. So Openbenches.org. Thank you, Terence. Yeah, what is this Open Benches thing? That, I, I saw you on Mastodon about this. So... Do you like open data? Yep. Yes, we do. Do you like sitting down? Yes, I do. Mm-hmm. So open benches is the happy joining of those two of my favourite things. So friend of the show, I think, a bit presumptuous maybe, but anyway, friend of the show, Terence Eden, 
all-round good chap. Well, we are friends with him, aren't we? We are friendly toward him. I haven't checked recently if it was reciprocated. Just to be clear, it's both Terence and Elizabeth Eden because it's a joint venture. It is. It is. No, uh, sorry. Um, Terence was the person who sort of made me aware of this. So Terence and Liz Eden run a project called Open Benches. I think it's a thing that's done more in the UK, although this is a worldwide thing. People put benches in public places with plaques on and they're memorials oftentimes or they are put there as you know sort of for the public good and so people put plaques on in memory of somebody or in support of some cause or this bench was put here by this organization or something like this mm. and i'm going to paraphrase and, and, and terence is probably going to be tearing his hair out now for me doing a poor job but he had this sense that there was this huge amount of information you know that would be interesting to historians and social scientists and people like that in the future that wasn't captured because there was all of this information about these people and where they lived and what they liked and what they did and all this kind of stuff. And it wasn't captured in a open structured way. You know, you could go and find maps of historical sites. You could go and find maps of special, you know, national trust properties. You could go and find maps of hills and sites of special scientific interest and green spaces and all this kind of stuff and statues and buildings that had particular status, but there was no map of these locations. And so as a, I think what started out as a fun project that he made open benches, it's openbenches.org. And I'm proud to say that on behalf of uh, 361 Podcast, I've made a small donation to the running costs. Well done. To support open benches this year. But have you done an open bench? Have you done one? Because there's quite a few on the on my walk in the UK. So some people might be struggling to understand. So th- it's effectively a map. You can scroll around. And when you see a bench with a plaque, you take a photo of it. If you really want to go the full hog, you take a, a photo of the, the plaque and you take a picture of the view from the bench. You upload it to the website. It scans the text and the plaque, you ty- or you can, you can type it in and mm. correct it. And basically what you do is you capture a record here of you know, kind of what this bench is and where it is. And then you can look it up and you can search through it. And so, for example, you know, Terence has got a variety of stories, but people researching ancestors or lost family members have sort of found them because... That's a good idea. Yeah. You know, there's in memory benches and those sorts of things, or, you know, things of particular interest or benches that record particular events and things. So it's a really nice idea. I love the idea of just sort of capturing that world around because there's so many data sets that are kind of useful to us, but not in a kind of a making profit kind of way. I like the idea that this is kind of a little bit like being able to go to the local church and see who got married there years ago. You know, like, did my family have a link to this place or, you know, where did my family graph or be able to do that kind of ancestry.com type experience and this is just yet another sort of data point it's a great idea and also i think you know perhaps more interestingly for some of the techie listeners they've built this really great sort of open source stack of software and relatively cheaply available tools that means that you've got a model where you can say if you want to build a geographic database of stuff you can now take their model and you could record nearly anything where the primary search is a location-based stuff that's a good idea yeah so it's a really nice stack so go to openbenches.org if you've got benches near you i want to check to see yeah yeah and somebody was asking him recently i know oh you know it's okay to go and update the benches because obviously over time there might be additions or there might be changes or you know you might see that your local bench is on there but it's got a rubbish photo and you can't see what you can see from there so no I i really like it and also i think there should be more fun kind of whimsical projects on the net i miss the days of making stuff for fun rather than you know kind of just uh elon musk and uh making money and uh making the internet a worse place so i really like that 
Well, I'm really pleased. I've looked it up and they don't have the benches in my area. So I'm going to go and do them when I'm back in the UK next week. Then you should upload it, yeah. You can do it from the browser then. You can do it through the browser. It's really super simple. What I tend to do is I take photos of the benches and because those photos are geotagged, then I come home and I do my uploads at home because I like to go and like when the optical character recognition doesn't get the words quite right, I like to just sort of correct the text and just sort of, if I'm going to make the effort of doing it, I like to do it properly, you know, and try to make a good record because I'm making a contribution to a historical thing here. But do that. And um, the absolute great thing is that because it's worldwide now, you know, people are taking photos all over and it's springing up and you can see, you know, people are taking pictures of benches on holidays or whatever. I really like it. And uh, so yeah, openbenches.org. And I have my openbenches.org cup here, which I have bought. No, I'm to get one. As a merchandise to keep my uh, pens and pencils in on my desk. I don't see many in the Middle East. I don't know if it's a thing in the Middle East. I need to have a look. I don't know. And, and also, I, I don't know whether Terence and Liz uh, anticipate kind of expanding it into, you know, memorials and, and things beyond just benches. But right now it is just benches. But I've been really surprised. When you start going to look, then, uh, you know, it's really fascinating. So do either of you have any housekeeping to do? I did mine at the wrong time. You did yours at the wrong time? Yeah. Right? I'm just going to say, Rub Rafe, no, 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 no. Definitely no, 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 no. Okay, we've heard you. We've heard you, uh, Ben. Yes, for context. What For context, that's how many times you said no last time. Yeah. All it took was six months of nagging. <laughs> What is Rub Rafe? And just remind us. So Rub Rafe was back when we were having a fundraising drive. So because of reasons, producing the podcast had become a little more expensive than it is these days as we do it completely remotely. Mm. And we were having a little bit of a fundraising drive. And we said that if we could secure a certain level of sponsorship through Patreon per episode, we would do an episode where Rafe got a massage live during the podcast. And it wasn't just purely silliness. It was because we were looking at on-demand services at the time and one of the services that we looked at was urban massage i think they're now just called urban in the uk Mm. and so we were just sort of marveling at all the different types of on-demand experiences you could get through your phone subsequently i think we looked at shopping and groceries and we looked at taxis and things like that but we did that service and uh, rafe participated throughout the podcast face down into a massage table to the point where he had a little snooze at the end it's quite comfortable actually it's a little bit comfortable. I do remember that. He was also the most florally fragrant I've ever experienced him in our in our many years of friendship. Although he's he's never anything less than fragrant, but he was especially fragrant on that and that evening. And he had little snooze for himself. And you and I finished off the podcast in a meeting room in his offices, which was hard to explain. I think to the uh, the cleaning staff who came in afterwards and wanted to know why he was in his pants. <laughs> so yeah, it was um, quite an experience, but a good time was had by all, and no doubt. Despite his prostrations, Rafe Blanford is keen um, to repeat the experience. No. I think so. I think so. Although, no. Although he didn't have a chief role at that point, I should point out. He has been no. elevated to even greater no. even greater heights than uh, he was now, although... No. But one would, imagine, one would imagine his colleagues would be expecting someone of his status and capability to come up with some really, really stimulating examples like that. I distinctly remember the deal was that someone else was going to be the recipient of the on-demand service next time. I don't remember that. I don't recall that as clearly as you do, Rafe. No. No. So, uh, no. Mm. Mm, indeed. What a surprise. And then just for the uh, for my dear Romani colleague listening, he's quite distraught that he can't get a postcard. I left a pregnant pause there. Yeah. Uh-huh. Well, maybe if you... Uh, Email me. I'll see what I can do about that, Ewan, but I will need some details. Okay. Oh, all right. So 
So basically, what we're hearing then, Ben... VIP treatment. I do think the door is open then, effectively. So yeah. if... if uh, I think I can make this proclamation now. If you did want a postcard from Rafe, or was that a one-off there, Rafe? Now, I think what you should do is if you do want to have a postcard or indeed a special present from Rafe Blanford, you should uh, contact us on Mastodon, 361 Podcast. There you go. At mastodon.social. Yeah. And uh, based on an overwhelming flood of uh, public enthusiasm, we can make our plans. Should explain, yeah, what, what does this mean? Well, I mean, let us know what you want and uh, we'll see if we can bully Rafe Blanford into doing it. That's what this uh, tail end of the uh, show is for. I will say that I am more willing to do postcards than I am another massage. (laughs) Just before we wrap up, I've got some exciting news for you. Apparently scientists have discovered a new species of antelope that can jump higher than a house. Go on. Scientists think it's due to the animal's powerful hind legs and the fact that houses can't jump. That's very good. Well, we should wrap up because unfortunately I don't have any more jokes. Although during the week, a friend of mine did send me a picture. And this isn't a joke, but they sent me a picture and it's of a like a marble statue. It's a sort of a bust of an ancient Athenian philosopher is the tagline here. It says, Chrysippus, an ancient Athenian philosopher, died from laughing at his own jokes. And uh, she sent that to me with no context. And uh, I said, you can write by saying, thank you. You know what you've done. Yeah. <laughs> Anyways, we should wrap up. Thank you very much to everyone for listening. If you'd like to... Uh, have Rafe Blanford do another participation podcast, please do uh, let us know. Bye-bye.